guys aren't drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. Peace. <laughs>
implied in this person's complaint about St. Paul's Episcopal Church Beloit is an unquestioned, underlying assumption about church that so many people have today, which is why I'm actually taking the time to address it. I'm not trying to focus on this one particular person and their complaint, but this place where this person is speaking from, because it speaks from a cultural place. And the assumption that's unquestioned and underlying is this. If I go to church, and if I happen to find the service there to be boring, this is somehow the church's problem, not my problem. The problem is that the church lacks an outward display of pizzazz, right? It has nothing at all, of course, to do with my lack of mindfulness. The problem is that the services don't keep my attention. Of course, it has nothing at all to do with my ever-dwindling attention span, right? My friends, this way of thinking would be like me going to a monastery and telling all of the monks who are deep in silent meditation there that they're doing it wrong because I can't find any entertainment value in their practice of silence. One star for you, you stupid, boring monastery, right? <laughs> Here's the thing, my friends. If I cannot sit in relative silence with other people and sing a few lovely hymns and chant a few chants for just one hour, one hour a week, I am pretty sure that this says a hell of a lot more about me than it does the church that I'm complaining about, right? And it certainly says a hell of a lot more about our cultural situation today than it does about parishes like ours. Because the culture at large today has habituated itself into filling every single moment of silence, every possibility of boredom with a screen, right? We're constantly looking to entertain ourselves. And thus, for most people today, church is just another product out there on the market to be consumed for entertainment's sake. If the music or the preaching isn't entertaining enough for me, well, I'll just switch brands and I'll go somewhere else, right? Something that nobody seems to be talking about these days, and I won't talk about it. My friends, if you happen to find church to be boring on occasion, I actually think you should celebrate that. And I, as your priest, don't feel apologetic for that in the slightest, and here's why. If you find yourself getting bored in church occasionally, right, do you know what it means? It means that the people in charge aren't trying to brainwash you. It means that they're not manipulating your emotions in order to coerce you into some sort of decision or some sort of altar call type of situation. Now contrast that with all of the big evangelical megachurches out there these days. Willow Creek, the whole Hillsong movement, you can watch all kinds of documentaries about this online these days, and Mars Hill and the whole Acts 29 movement. These churches have mastered the art of emotional manipulation, particularly through music. Yes, music is meant to evoke emotional responses from us, right? That's what makes music so wonderful, right? And so life-giving. However, there are many churches these days who have taken it to a cult-like level. One journalist recently posed a question to people who attend these types of churches. Are you crying because the Lord is staging some kind of intervention in your life? Or are you crying 
because the chord structure of the song that you are currently singing is specifically designed to make you cry. One psychologist even concluded that the whole megachurch experience, everything from the lighting and the staging, the music, the swagger of the sexy pastor, right? All of it is specifically designed to limit your emotional response in order to subconsciously direct it towards a certain end. Not your end, their end. Give us more of your time. Give us way more, a lot more of your money. Give yourself to our very narrow brand of ideology. All of this to say, my friends, if you find yourself getting bored in church, churches like ours, sometimes, do you know what it means? It means that the people there are giving you something very precious and very rare, something you can hardly find anywhere anymore these days. They're giving you the space just to be. The space just to be with yourself and with God. The space to work this whole thing called life out, right? My friends, this church at least does not exist to entertain you. This church exists to transform you, but it's a transformation that you are invited to choose for yourself. Those of us in callers, I think I could safely speak for Greg here, we have no desire whatsoever to entertain you into the kingdom of God, right? If you wish to be entertained, go to a Nickelback concert. Actually, don't. Nickelback really, really sucks. I wouldn't wish that for you. <laughs> but if you wish to be transformed, if you wish to get your mind and your heart in tune with each other, if you wish to discover the source of true meaning and ultimate happiness in life, then places like these are the places that it's good to be in. Even science backs this up, and science rarely backs religion up these days, but even science backs this point up. Psychologists like Carl Jung have been saying for decades now that the Eucharistic liturgy, this thing that we do every single Sunday together, is one of the most potent rituals for psychological self-awakening out there. And there's a modern movement called positive psychology, where instead of just zeroing in on the treatment of mental illness, these psychologists are studying the lives of people who claim to be truly, really happy. One of the things that they always discover is that the happiest people on the planet most often are religious people, at least people who have some sort of shared ritual that empowers them to discover their deep connection with the divine, with other people, and with the universe. I mean, this is what the word religion means. It means a relinking, a reconnecting. Is this not what we do here together each and every single Sunday? Relink and reconnect. After spending so much of our week feeling pretty fragmented, right? And disconnected. And is this not what the Feast of Pentecost is all about? Remembering our union with the divine, that God's holy fire is not up there far away somewhere, but she burns within our hearts. Is this not what it's about? And this union is a union that overcomes all cultural boundaries, all races, all languages, uniting us. A few years ago, my stepdad told me about an experience he had in his garage one day. 
He was tinkering with a carport, like a carburetor or something. And as he was working on it, taking it apart, putting it back together, cleaning it up and fixing it up, he told me he just completely lost himself in the moment. Losing all sense of worry, losing all sense of time, even losing all sense of self. He was totally at one with what he was doing in the moment. And he said he was just so grateful just to be there, working on that car park in that moment in his garage. So he could have died then and there, and he would have died the happiest man ever. I told him that one of my old priest mentors used to call moments like these thin spaces. Times in life when the space between heaven and earth suddenly starts to feel a lot thinner. We've all known these kind of moments, right? Haven't we? Like, maybe we weren't working on hard hard, but maybe we felt like the space between heaven and earth grew thinner while we were playing with our kids or our grandkids, or while we were sharing a good meal with loved ones, or sharing a glass of wine, a bottle of wine with loved ones, right? Maybe we lost ourselves in the joy of the moment while we were on a hike, or swimming in a lake, or reading an awesome book, or knitting a quilt, or playing a video game, or losing ourselves in the eyes of our beloved. My friends, this, this is why we go to church. To enter the thinnest space we possibly can for just one hour a week, so that we can learn how to wake up to and to abide in the thin space for every other hour of the week. We go to church so that we can make these joyous occasions, these heavenly moments, a more frequent thing in life, because they are far too <laughs> uh, infrequent, aren't they? If you're like me, at least they are. My friends, we go to church to learn how to see the world through Jesus' eyes. And how do we do this? By praying like Jesus. What was Jesus' central theme in his prayers in his life, do you know? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Father, I thank you because you have shown to the unlearned what you have hidden from the wise and the learned. Father, I thank you. Father, I thank you. Father, I thank you. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. After supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. What does the word Eucharist mean, again, my friends? Thanksgiving. Gratefulness. That's what we practice here. That's what this is entirely about. In fact, in our tradition, we call the Eucharist the great Thanksgiving. Because gratefulness is at the heart of everything we do. It's at the heart of everything that we are. Because it's the heart and center of everything that Jesus is. As a first century Jewish mystic, Jesus would have learned a couple of different meditation methods and mantras, but gratefulness was the thing that was central throughout all of it. Gratefulness was his spirituality. Gratefulness was his prayer method. Gratefulness was his mantra. So much so that the entire New Testament equates his sacrifice on the cross with the thank offering of the Old Testament, the Old Temple. Meaning that Jesus wasn't just thankful or grateful, he actually embodied gratefulness. After having had his mystical experience of Christ, 
St. Paul realized that there's only three things, just three things that you will ever need to do in your life to fulfill God's will for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Over a thousand years later, the greatest mystic, in my opinion, who ever lived, Meister Eckhart, realized that these three, three things that Paul listed, they're not three, they're actually just one. And Eckhart summed up the entire Christian tradition with these words. If the only prayer you ever managed to pray in your entire life is, that would be enough. That is what we do here every single Sunday. At least that's what we're trying to do, right? We pray the prayer that is enough for God. More than that, we pray the prayer that makes life enough for us. The great thanksgiving. And in practicing gratefulness here, we're learning how to practice gratefulness out there. And life becomes for us one great, big, giant Eucharist. This gratefulness that makes these thin spaces, these heavenly moments, a more frequent thing in life. It is gratefulness that makes all of life one big Pentecost that never ends, right? Hopefully you get confused for being a drunkard at nine in the morning because you're just so high on the Spirit, right? It is gratefulness that wakes us up to the Spirit's presence within us, waking us up to our deep connection even with every other human being. Gratefulness even is the secret to happiness. To put it in Paul's words, we can rejoice always when we have learned how to pray continually out of a heart of gratitude. To put it in one modern mystic's words, we're not grateful because we're happy. We are happy because we're grateful.